Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 24 and 25 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. In the last episode, the Persian and Monsieur de Chagny had managed to find Christine Day, but not escape the torture chamber. In this episode, Monsieur de Chagny and the Persian continue their trials in the torture chamber. This episode has some themes that may disturb some listeners, so if you're not prepared for scenes of anguish and peril, you might want to give this particular episode a miss. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. Take a deep breath in through your nose. And breathe out through your mouth. And as you continue to breathe, however it feels most comfortable to do so, with every exhale, I want you to imagine all the stresses of the day leaving your body. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So whilst you're on your journey to sleep, all you'll have to do is listen to the sound of my voice. And so, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 24 Barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell. The Persian's narrative continued. I have said that the room in which Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny and I were imprisoned was a regular hexagon, lined entirely with mirrors. Plenty of these rooms have been seen since, mainly at exhibitions. They are called Palaces of Illusion, or some such name. But the invention belongs entirely to Eric, who built the first room of this kind under my eyes at the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan. A decorative object, such as a column, for instance, was placed in one of the corners and immediately produced a hall of a thousand columns, for thanks to the mirrors, the real room was multiplied by six hexagonal rooms, each of which, in its turn, was multiplied indefinitely. But the little sultana soon tired of this infantile illusion, whereupon Eric altered his invention into a torture chamber. For the architectural motive placed in one corner, he substituted an iron tree. This tree, with its painted leaves, was absolutely true to life and was made of iron so as to resist all attacks of the patient who was locked in the torture chamber. We shall see how the scene thus obtained was twice altered instantaneously into two successive other scenes by means of the automatic rotation of the drums or rollers in the corner. These were divided into three sections, 
fitting into the angles of the mirror and each supporting a decorative scheme that came into sight as the rollers revolved upon its axis. The walls of this strange room gave the patient nothing to lay hold of because, apart from the solid decorative object, they were simply furnished with mirrors thick enough to withstand any onslaught of the victim who was flung into the chamber empty-handed and barefoot. There was no furniture. The ceiling was capable of being lit up, an ingenious system of electric heating which has since been imitated, allowed the temperature of the walls and room to be increased at will. I am giving all these details of a perfectly natural invention, producing, with a few painted branches, the supernatural illusion of an equatorial forest blazing under the tropical sun, so that no one may doubt the present balance of my brain or feel entitled to say that I am mad, or lying, or that I take him for a fool. I now return to the facts where I left them. When the ceiling lit up and the forest became visible around us, the Viscount's stupefaction was immense. That impenetrable forest, with its innumerable trunks and branches, threw him into a terrible state of consternation. He passed his hands over his forehead, as though to drive away a dream. His eyes blinked, and, for a moment, he forgot to listen. I have already said that the sight of the forest did not surprise me at all, and therefore I listened for the two of us to what was happening next door. Lastly, my attention was especially attracted, not so much to the scene, as to the mirrors that produced it. These mirrors were broken in parts. Yes, they were marked and scratched. They had been starred in spite of their solidity, and this proved to me that the torture chamber in which we now were had already served a purpose. Yes, some wretch, whose feet were not bare like those of the victim of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, had certainly fallen into this mortal illusion, and, mad with rage, had kicked against those mirrors which, nevertheless, continued to reflect his agony. The branch of the tree on which he had put an end to his own sufferings was arranged in such a way that, before dying, he had seen, for his last consolation, a thousand men writhing in his company. Yes, Joseph Bouquet had undoubtedly been through all this. Were we to die as he had done? I did not think so, for I knew that we had a few hours before us, and that I could employ them to better purpose than Joseph Bouquet was able to do. After all, I was thoroughly acquainted with most of Eric's tricks, and now or never was the time to turn my knowledge to account. To begin with, I gave up every idea of returning to the passage that had brought us to that accursed chamber. I did not trouble about the possibility of working the inside stone that closed the passage, and this for the simple reason that to do so was out of the question. We had dropped from too great a height into the torture chamber. There was no furniture to help us reach that passage, not even the branch of the iron tree, not even each other's shoulders were of any avail. There was only one possible outlet, that opening into the Louis-Philippe room in which Eric and Christine Day were. But, though this outlet looked like an ordinary door to Christine's side, it was absolutely invisible to us. We must, therefore, try to open it without even knowing where it was. When I was quite sure that there was no hope for us from Christine Day's side, 
when I had heard the monster dragging the poor girl from the Louis-Philippe room, lest she should interfere with our tortures. I resolved to set to work without delay. But I had first to calm Monsieur de Chagny, who was already walking about like a madman, uttering incoherent cries. The snatches of conversation which he had caught between Christine and the monster had contributed not a little to drive him beside himself. Add to that the shock of the magic forest and the scorching heat which was beginning to make the perspiration stream down his temples, and you will have no difficulty in understanding his state of mind. He shouted Christine's name, brandished his pistol, knocked his forehead against the glass in his endeavor to run down the glades of the elusive forest. In short, the torture was beginning to work, its spell upon a brain unprepared for it. I did my best to induce the poor Viscount to listen to reason. I made him touch the mirrors, and the iron tree, and the branches, and explained to him, by optical laws, all the luminous imagery by which we were surrounded, and of which we need not allow ourselves to be victims like ordinary, ignorant people. We are in a room, a little room. That is what you must keep saying to yourself. And we shall leave the room as soon as we have found the door. And I promised him that, if he let me act, without disturbing me by shouting and walking up and down, I would discover the trick of the door in less than an hour's time. Then he lay flat on the floor, as one does in a wood, and declared that he would wait until I found the door of the forest, as there was nothing better to do. And he added that, from where he was, the view was splendid. The torture was working, in spite of all that I had said. Myself, forgetting the forest, I tackled the glass panel and began to finger it in every direction, hunting for the weak point on which to press in order to turn the door in accordance with Eric's system of pivots. This weak point might be a mere speck on the glass, no longer than a pea, under which the spring lay hidden. I hunted and hunted. I felt as high as my hands could reach. Eric was about the same height as myself, and I thought that he would not have placed the spring higher than suited his stature. While groping over the successive panels with the greatest care, I endeavoured not to lose a minute, for I was feeling more and more overcome with the heat, and we were literally roasting in the blazing forest. I had been working like this for half an hour, and had finished three panels, when, as ill luck would have it, I turned round on hearing a muttered exclamation from the Viscount. I am stifling, he said. All those mirrors are sending out an infernal heat. Do you think you will find that spring soon? If you are much longer about it, we shall be roasted alive. I was not sorry to hear him talk like this. He had not said a word of the forest, and I hoped that my companion's reason would hold out some time longer against the torture. But he added, What consoles me is that the monster has given Christine until eleven tomorrow evening. If we can't get out of here and go to her assistance, at least we shall be dead before her. Then Eric's mass can serve for all of us. And he gulped down a breath of hot air that nearly made him faint. As I had not the same desperate reasons as Monsieur le Vicomte for accepting death, I returned after giving him a word of encouragement to my panel. 
but I had made the mistake of taking a few steps while speaking, and, in the tangle of the elusive forest, I was no longer able to find my panel for certain. I had to begin all over again, at random, feeling, fumbling, groping. Now the fever laid hold of me in my turn, for I found nothing, absolutely nothing. In the next room, all was silence. We were quite lost in the forest, without an outlet, a compass, a guide, or anything. Oh, how I knew what awaited us if nobody came to our aid, or if I did not find the spring. But, look as I might, I found nothing but branches, beautiful branches that stood straight up before me, or spread gracefully over my head. But they gave no shade, and this was natural enough, as we were in an equatorial forest, with the sun right above our heads, an African forest. Monsieur de Chagny and I had repeatedly taken off our coats and put them on again, finding at one time that they made us feel still hotter and at another time that they protected us against the heat. I was still making a moral resistance, but Monsieur de Chagny seemed to me quite gone. He pretended that he had been walking in the forest for three days and nights without stopping, looking for Christine Day. From time to time, he thought he saw her behind the trunk of the tree or gliding between the branches, and he called to her with words of supplication that brought tears to my eyes, and then, at last, Oh, how thirsty I am, he cried in delirious accents. I was thirsty too, my throat was on fire, and yet, squatting on the floor, I went on hunting, hunting, hunting for the spring of the invisible door, especially as it was dangerous to remain in the forest as evening drew nigh. Already the shades of night were beginning to surround us. It had happened very quickly. Night falls quickly in tropical countries, suddenly, with hardly any twilight. Now night, in the forest of the equator, is always dangerous particularly when, like ourselves, one has not the materials for a fire to keep off the beasts of prey. I did indeed try for a moment to break off the branches, which I would have lit with my dark lantern, but I knocked myself also against the mirrors and remembered, in time, that we had only images of branches to do with. The heat did not go with the daylight, On the contrary, it was now still hotter under the blue rays of the moon. I urged the Viscount to hold our weapons, ready to fire, and not to stray from camp while I went on looking for my spring. Suddenly, we heard a lion roaring a few yards away. Oh, whispered the Viscount, he is quite close. Don't you see him? There, through the trees, in that thicket. If he roars again, I will fire. And the roaring began again, louder than before. And the Viscount fired. But I do not think that he hit the lion. Only, he smashed a mirror. As I perceived the next morning, at daybreak, We must have covered a good distance during the night, for we suddenly found ourselves on the edge of the desert, an immense desert of sand, stones and rock. It was really not worthwhile leaving the forest to come upon the desert. Tired out, I flung myself down beside the Viscount, for I had had enough of looking for springs which I could not find. I was quite surprised and I said so to the Viscount, 
that we had encountered no other dangerous animals during the night. Usually, after the lion came, the leopard, and sometimes the buzz of the tsets fly. These were easily obtained effects, and I explained to Monsieur de Chagny that Eric imitated the roar of a lion on a long tabber or timbrel with an ass's skin at one end. Over this skin, he tied a string of catgut, which was fastened at the middle to another similar string passing through the whole length of the tabber. Eric had only to rub this string with a glove smeared with resin and, according to the manner in which he rubbed it, it imitated to perfection the voice of the lion or the leopard or even the buzzing of the set's fly. The idea that Eric was probably in the room beside us, working his trick, made me suddenly resolve to enter into a parley with him, for we must obviously give up all thought of taking him by surprise. And by this time, he must be quite aware who were the occupants of his torture chamber. I called him. Eric. Eric. I shouted as loudly as I could across the desert, but there were no answers to my voice. All around us lay the silence and the bare immensity of that stony desert. What was to become of us in the midst of that awful solitude? We were beginning literally to die of heat, hunger, and thirst, of thirst especially. At last, I saw Monsieur de Chagny raise himself on his elbow and point to a spot on the horizon. He had discovered an oasis. Yes, far in the distance was an oasis, an oasis with liquid water, which reflected the iron tree. Tush, it was the scene of the mirage. I recognized it at once the worst of the three. No one had been able to fight against it. No one. I did my utmost to keep my head and not to hope for water, because I knew that if a man hoped for water, that the water reflected the iron tree, and if after hoping for water, he struck against the mirror, then there was only one thing for him to do, to hang himself on the iron tree. So I cried to Monsieur de Chagny, It's the mirage! It's the mirage! Don't believe in the water. It's another trick of the mirrors. Then he flatly told me to shut up with my tricks of the mirrors, my springs, my revolving doors, and my palaces of illusions. He angrily declared that I must be either blind or mad to imagine that all that water flowing over there, among those splendid, numberless trees, was not real water. And the desert was real, and so was the forest, and it was no use trying to take him in. He was an old, experienced traveller. He had been all over the place and he had dragged himself along, saying, Water, water, and his mouth was open, as though he were drinking, and my mouth was open too, as though I were drinking, for we not only saw the water, but we heard it, we heard it flow, we heard it ripple. Do you understand the word ripple? It is a sound which you hear with your tongue. You put your tongue out of your mouth to listen for it better. Lastly, and this was the most pitiless torture of all, we heard the rain, and it was not raining. This was an infernal invention. Oh, I knew well enough how Eric obtained it. He filled with little stones a very long and narrow box, 
broken up inside with wooden and metal projections. The stones, in falling, struck against these projections and were bounded from one another, and the result was a series of pattering sounds that exactly imitated a rainstorm. Ah, you should have seen us putting out our tongues and dragging ourselves towards the rippling riverbank. Our eyes and ears were full of water, but our tongues were hard and dry as horn. When we reached the mirror, Monsieur de Chagny licked it, and I also licked the glass. It was burning hot. Then we rolled on the floor with a hoarse cry of despair. Monsieur de Chagny put the one pistol that was still loaded to his temple, and I stared at the Punjab lasso at the foot of the iron tree. I knew why the iron tree had returned in this third change of scene. The iron tree was waiting for me. But as I stared at the Punjab lasso, I saw a thing that made me start so violently that Monsieur de Chagny delayed his attempt at suicide. I took his arm, and then I caught the pistol from him, and then I dragged myself on my knees towards what I had seen. I had discovered, near the Punjab lasso, in a groove in the floor, a black-headed nail of which I knew the use. At last, I had discovered the spring. I felt the nail. I lifted a radiant face to Monsieur de Chagny. The black-headed nail yielded to my pressure. And then... And then we saw not a door open in the wall, but a cellar flap released in the floor. Cool air came up to us from the black hole below. We stooped over that square of darkness as though over a limpid well. With our chins in the cool shade, we drank it in, and we bent lower and lower over the trap door. What could there be in that cellar which opened before us? Water? Water to drink? I thrust my arm into the darkness and came upon a stone and another stone, a staircase, a dark staircase leading into the cellar. The Viscount wanted to fling himself down the hole, but I feared new tricks of the monster, stopped him, turned on my dark lantern and went down first. The staircase was a winding one, and led down into pitchy darkness. But oh, how deliciously cool were the darkness and the stairs. The lake could not be far away. We soon reached the bottom. Our eyes were beginning to accustom themselves to the dark, to distinguish shapes around us, circular shapes on which I turned the light of my lantern. Barrels. We were in Eric's cellar. It was here that he must keep his wine and perhaps his drinking water. I knew that Eric was a great lover of good wine. Ah, there was plenty to drink here. Monsieur de Chagny patted the round shapes and kept on saying, Barrels barrels. What a lot of barrels. Indeed, there was quite a number of them, symmetrically arranged in two rows, one on either side of us. They were small barrels, and I thought that Eric must have selected them of that size to facilitate their carriage to the house on the lake. We examined them successfully, to see if one of them had not a funnel showing that it had been tapped at some time or other, but all the barrels were hermetically sealed. Then, after half lifting one to make sure it was full, we went on our knees, 
and with the blade of a small knife which I carried, I prepared to stave in the bunghole. At that moment, I seemed to hear, coming from very far, a sort of monotonous chant, which I knew well, from often hearing it in the streets of Paris. Barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell. My hand desisted from its work. Monsieur de Chagny had also heard. He said, That's funny. It sounds as if the barrel was singing. The song was renewed, farther away. Barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell. Oh, I swear, said the Viscount, that the tune dies away in the barrel. We stood up and went to look behind the barrel. It's inside, said Monsieur de Chagny. It's inside. But we heard nothing there and were driven to accuse the bad condition of our senses, and we returned to the bunghole. Monsieur de Chagny put his two hands together underneath it, and, with a last effort, I burst the bung. What's this? cried the Viscount. This isn't water. The Viscount put his two full hands close to my lantern. I stooped to look, and at once threw away the lantern with such violence that it broke and went out, leaving us in utter darkness. What I had seen in Monsieur de Chagny's hand was gunpowder. Chapter 25 The Scorpion or the Grasshopper Which The Persian's narrative concluded. The discovery flung us into a state of alarm that made us forget all our past and present sufferings. We now knew all that the monster meant to convey when he said to Christine Day, Yes or no, if your answer is no, everybody will be dead and buried. Yes, buried under the ruins of Paris Grand Opera. The monster had given her until eleven o'clock in the evening. He had chosen his time well. There would be many people, many members of the human race, up there, in the resplendent theatre. What finer retinue could be expected for his funeral? He would go down to the tomb, escorted by the whitest shoulders in the world, decked with the richest jewels. Eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. We were all to be blown up in the middle of the performance, if Christine Day said no. Eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. And what else could Christine say but no? Would she not prefer to espouse death itself rather than that living corpse? She did not know that on her acceptance or refusal depended the awful fate of many members of the human race. Eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. And we dragged ourselves through the darkness, feeling our way to the stone steps for the light in the trapdoor overhead that led to the room of mirrors was now extinguished, and we repeated to ourselves, eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. At last I found the staircase, but suddenly I drew myself up on the first step, for a terrible thought had come to mind. What is the time? Ah. What was the time? For, after all, eleven o'clock tomorrow evening might be now, might be this very moment. Who could tell us the time? We seemed to have been imprisoned in that hell for days and days, for years, since the beginning of the world. Perhaps we should be blown up then and there. Ah, a sound. A crack. Did you hear that? There, in the corner. Good heavens, 
like a sound of machinery. Again. Oh, for a light. Perhaps it's the machinery that is to blow everything up. I tell you, a cracking sound. Are you deaf? Monsieur de Chagny and I began to yell like madmen. Fear spurred us on. We rushed up the treads of the staircase, stumbling as we went. Anything to escape the dark, to return to the mortal light of the room of mirrors. We found the trap door still open, but it was now as dark in the room of mirrors as in the cellar which we had left. We dragged ourselves along the floor of the torture chamber, the floor that separated us from the gunpowder magazine. What was the time? We shouted. We called. Monsieur de Chagny to Christine. I to Eric. I reminded him that I had saved his life. But no answer. Save that of our despair. Of our madness. What was the time? We argued. We tried to calculate the time which we had spent there. But we were incapable of reasoning. If only we could see the face of a watch. Mine had stopped, but Monsieur de Chagny's was still going. He told me that he had wound it up before dressing for the opera. We had not a match upon us, and yet we must know. Monsieur de Chagny broke the glass of his watch and felt the two hands. He questioned the hands of the watch with his fingertips going by the position of the ring of the watch. Judging by the space between the hands, he thought it might be just eleven o'clock. But perhaps it was not the eleven o'clock of which we stood in dread. Perhaps we still had twelve hours before us. Suddenly, I exclaimed, Hush! I seemed to hear footsteps in the next room. Christine Day's voice said, Raoul, Raoul. We were now all talking at once, on either side of the wall. Christine sobbed. She was not sure that she would find Monsieur de Chagny alive. The monster had been terrible, it seemed, had done nothing but rave, waiting for her to give him the yes which she refused. And yet, she had promised him that yes if he would take her to the torture chamber. But he had obstinately declined and had uttered hideous threats against all the members of the human race. At last, after hours and hours of that hell, he had that moment gone out, leaving her alone to reflect for the last time. Hours and hours what is the time now? What is the time, Christine? It is eleven o'clock. Eleven o'clock. All but five minutes. But which eleven o'clock? The eleven o'clock that is to decide life or death. He told me so just before he went. He is terrible. He is quite mad. He tore off his mask and his yellow eyes shot flames. He did nothing but laugh. He said, I give you five minutes to spare your blushes. He said, taking a key from the little bag of life and death. Here is the little bronze key that opens the two ebony caskets on the mantelpiece in the Louis Philippe room. In one of the caskets, you will find a scorpion in the other, a grasshopper, both very cleverly imitated in Japanese bronze. They will say yes or no for you. If you turn the scorpion round, that will mean to me, when I return, that you have said yes. The grasshopper will mean no. And he laughed like a drunken demon. I did nothing but beg and entreat him to give me the key of the torture chamber, promising to be his wife if he granted me that request. But he told me that there was no future need for that key, 
and that he was going to throw it into the lake. And he again laughed like a drunken demon and left me. Oh, his last words were, The grasshopper. Be careful of the grasshopper. A grasshopper does not only turn, it hops, it hops, and it hops jolly high. The five minutes had nearly elapsed, and the scorpion and the grasshopper were scratching at my brain. Nevertheless, I had sufficient lucidity left to understand that, if the grasshopper were turned, it would hop, and with it, many members of the human race. There was no doubt but that the grasshopper controlled an electric current intended to blow up the powder magazine. Monsieur de Chagny, who seemed to have recovered all his moral force from hearing Christine's voice, explained to her, in a few hurried words, the situation in which we and all the opera were. He told her to turn the scorpion at once. There was a pause. Christine, I cried, where are you? By the scorpion. Don't touch it. The idea had come to me, for I knew my Eric, that the monster had perhaps deceived the girl once more. Perhaps it was the scorpion that would blow everything up. After all, why wasn't he there? The five minutes were long past, and he was not back. Perhaps he had taken shelter and was waiting for the explosion. Why had he not returned? He could not really expect Christine ever to consent to become his voluntary prey. Why had he not returned? Don't touch the scorpion, I said. Here he comes, cried Christine. I hear him. Here he is. We heard his steps approaching the Louis-Philippe room. He came up to Christine, but did not speak. Then I raised my voice. Eric, it is I. Do you know me? With extraordinary calmness, he at once replied. So you are not dead in there. Well then, see that you keep quiet. I tried to speak, but he said coldly, Not a word, Doroga, or I shall blow everything up. And he added, The honor rests with Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle has not touched the scorpion. How deliberately he spoke. Mademoiselle has not touched the grasshopper. With that composure. But it is not too late to do the right thing. There, I open the casket without a key. For I am a trapdoor lover, and I open and shut what I please, and as I please. I open the little ebony caskets, mademoiselle. Look at the little dears inside. Aren't they pretty? If you turn the grasshopper, mademoiselle, we shall all be blown up. There is enough gunpowder under our feet to blow up a whole quarter of Paris. If you turn the scorpion, mademoiselle, all the gunpowder will be soaked and drowned to celebrate our love and our wedding. You shall make a very handsome present to a few hundred Parisians who are at this moment applauding a poor masterpiece of mere beers. You shall make them a present of their lives, for, with your own fair hands, you shall turn the scorpion, and merrily, merrily, we will be married. A pause, and then, if, in two minutes, mademoiselle, you have not turned the scorpion, I shall turn the grasshopper, and the grasshopper, I tell you, hops jolly high. The terrible silence began anew. The Vicomte de Chagny, realizing that there was nothing left to do but pray, went down on his knees and prayed. As for me, my blood beat so fiercely 
that I had to take my heart in both hands, lest it should burst. At last, we heard Eric's voice. Two minutes are past. Goodbye, mademoiselle. Hop, grasshopper. Eric, cried Christine. Do you swear to me, monster? Do you swear to me that the scorpion is the one to turn? Yes, to hop at our wedding. Ah, you see, you said to hop. At our wedding, ingenious child. The scorpion opens the ball. But that will do. You won't have the scorpion. Then I turn the grasshopper. Eric, enough. I was crying out in concert with Christine. Monsieur de Chagny was still on his knees, praying. Eric, I have turned the scorpion. Oh, the second through which we passed. Waiting, waiting to find ourselves in fragments amid the roar and the ruins. Feeling something crack beneath our feet, hearing an appalling hiss through the open trapdoor, a hiss like the first sound of a rocket. It came softly at first, then louder, then very loud, but it was not the hiss of fire, it was more like the hiss of water, and now it became a gurgling sound, guggle guggle. We rushed to the trapdoor, and all our thirst, which vanished when the terror came, now returned with the lapping of the water. The water rose in the cellar, above the barrels, the powder barrels, 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 any barrels to sell, and we went down to it with parched throats. It rose to our chins, to our mouths, and we drank. We stood on the floor of the cellar and drank. And we went up the stairs again in the dark, step by step, went up with the water. The water came out of the cellar with us and spread over the floor of the room. If this went on, the whole house on the lake would be swamped. The floor of the torture chamber had itself become a regular little lake, in which our feet splashed. Surely there was water enough now. Eric must turn off the tap. Eric, Eric, this is water enough for the gunpowder. Turn off the tap. Turn off the scorpion. But Eric did not reply. We heard nothing but the water rising. It was halfway to our waists. Christine, cried Monsieur de Chagny. Christine, the water is up to our knees. But Christine did not reply. We heard nothing but the water rising. No one, no one in the next room. No one to turn the tap. No one to turn the scorpion. We were all alone, in the dark, with the dark water that seized us and clasped us and froze us. Eric, Eric, Christine, Christine. By this time, we had lost our foothold and were spinning round in the water, carried away by an irresistible whirl, for the water turned with us and dashed us against the dark mirror which thrust us back again, and our throats, raised above the whirlpool, roared aloud. We were to die here, drowned in the torture chamber. I had never seen that. Eric at the time of the rosy hours of Mazaderan had never shown me that through the little invisible window. Eric, Eric, I cried. I saved your life, remember. You were sentenced to death. But for me, you would be dead now. Eric. 
we whirled around in the water like so much wreckage. But suddenly, my straying hands seized the trunk of the iron tree. I called Monsieur de Chagny, and we both hung to the branch of the iron tree. And the water rose still higher. Oh, oh, can you remember? How much space is there between the branch of the tree and the dome-shaped ceiling? Do try to remember. After all, the water may stop. It must find its level. There, I think it is stopping. No. Oh no. Horrible. Swim. Swim for your life. Our arms became entangled in the effort of swimming. We choked, we fought in the dark water. Already we could hardly breathe the dark air above the dark water. The air which escaped, which we could hear escaping through some vent hole or other. Oh, let us turn and turn and turn until we find the air hole and then glue our mouths to it. But I lost my strength. I tried to lay hold of the walls. Oh, how those glass walls slipped from under my groping fingers. We whirled around again. We began to sink. One last effort. A last cry. Eric. Christine. Guggle, guggle, guggle. In our ears. Guggle, guggle. At the bottom of the dark water. Our ears went guggle-guggle, and, before losing consciousness entirely, I seemed to hear, between two guggles, barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell. <laughs>